Uh, as we look at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, uh, let us come before the Lord in prayer uh, that he might teach us and transform us through his life-giving word. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you that only through faith in Jesus Christ can we come into a right relationship with you. But we are called to be constantly renewed in the inner man by the work of your spirit as you minister to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you might do that in our time together this morning as we look at these verses from James. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, when I was a kid in primary school, at Barrel Primary School in particular, and once a year, I would go to an allergy doctor's appointment. Now, Sydney was about an hour and a half or hour and three quarter drive from Barrel, so a doctor's appointment in Sydney equals a day off from school. But if you've ever been to an allergy specialist, it effectively means that you set yourself up as a pincushion for quite a period of time. They put little drops of every known substance they can think of and then they prick you with a pin and whatever swells up, then that's what you're allergic to. The bigger reaction, uh, the bigger the extent of your allergy. So what was my greatest allergies as a child at least? Well, Take out your pens in case you're ever providing a meal for the Adams household. My greatest allergies were cockroaches and nicotine. So any plans you had of the world famous cockroach and nicotine hot pot, scrub it off the menu, it's not good for me. But in reality, even though nobody enjoys receiving needles and pinpricks and all those things, for a young kid to get a day off school, then also be followed by a trip to Sydney Tower to get an ice cream, you could endure everything that happened in between those two events. What pinpricks? And what we're looking at in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, in a much, much, much more astronomical scale, James is reminding his readers of the living hope that they have in Christ. To fix their heart and their eyes upon that. That they may be able to endure all of the hardships that this life and this world has to offer. In verses 1 to 6 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, James issued some very stern warnings to some rich landowners. Now the Bible is neither for or against people being wealthy. Wretches or wealth are neither good or evil inherently, but you can use them in a way which is either good or evil. And the vast majority or everything that James focused on in verses 1 to 6 were people who were misusing the resources that God had blessed them with. They were using them for evil purposes, for self-indulgence, to hoard things for themselves, to exploit those who are poor 
and even to persecute the righteous. The bottom line of those six verses was this. There were people who were surrounding them who looked successful in the eyes of the world. They had made every single possible preparation for an eventuality that might not ever happen, might not ever need all that excess that they had stored up. But they had done nothing by way of preparation for something they would face definitely as one day all will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. James is almost condemning them for saying, you have prepared for something that is temporary and unknown if it's even going to be required. Yet the far more important, you've done no preparation and its consequences are eternal. But for James's readers to see the success and the, the wealth of those around them, when they themselves have come out of persecution, so they probably haven't brought their resources with them, they're poor and they're persecuted, they could be tempted to look around at the fate of others and think, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth being a Christian? So verses 1 to 6 not only reminds them of the rich that they're seeing around them, it's not all smiles and glamour, but they too will stand before Jesus and give an account for everything they've done. And James's focus was upon the evil that they have done and used their wealth for. But verses 7 to 12 focus the attentions of those Christians to be patient. Because the Lord's coming is near, who will not only judge people for their wicked actions, but who will abundantly bless and reward those who have held fast and clung on to Jesus. So as we look through these verses, we're going to see waiting for your glorious inheritance in verses 7 to 9. We're going to look at an examples of patient endurance in verses 10 to 11. Why we don't need oaths in verse 12. And wrapping it up with, Good things come to those who wait. But firstly, waiting for your glorious inheritance in verses 7 to 9. It's so easy as a Christian to look around at the world and the people who surround you and just get frustrated as you see those who have not a glimmer of respect for God and their lives are seen to be flourishing. There doesn't seem to be any consequence at all. Everything seems to be going better for them than it seems to be going for you. And even if it's just for a moment, will you think to yourself, is it worth being a Christian? What's even more damaging is sometimes the nature of some gospel presentations. When a preacher suggests to people that you need to Turn from sin and place your trust in Jesus. True? And then they say, and if you trust in Jesus, the rest of your life will be easy. You'll be free from all of your troubles. But that, my friends, is simply not true. 
If we look to see what Jesus had to specifically say, Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See what Jesus says there? It says, in me you will have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But in this world in which you will guaranteed have tribulation, the one who is in you says, I have overcome the world. And so James's message to a people who are looking around at the seemingly success and happiness of the wealth and the wicked around them, who are appearing to prosper, he says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. I know you want to see them get their just desserts here and now for their wicked actions, but be patient. You know the Lord is coming. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, what we said last week, James is not suggesting that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime or that it was going to happen soon. James hasn't got a clue when Jesus is returning. I don't have a clue when Jesus is returning. You don't have a clue when Jesus is returning. In fact, Jesus himself spoke about this matter in Matthew 24 and saying, But concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says very clearly, nobody knows. The Father alone knows. Anybody claiming to know claims that they know better than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But one thing Jesus says he does know is it'll be just like the days of Noah. People won't expect it. They'll be just going about doing their normal everyday things. And when it comes, the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be saved. Now, judgment has already been a significant theme of verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. And in verse 7, James has called them to be patient. In light of the Lord's coming, he will indeed come. And then he uses the picture of a farmer to illustrate the point, saying, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and the late rains. Sorry, the early and late rains. Think about it, especially from a first century farming perspective. They were dependent upon the weather for everything. You didn't get rain, you didn't get produce. But they waited patiently, knowing that the rain would come. And Jesus says, in the same way, brothers and sisters, we should wait patiently, knowing with absolute certainty that the Lord will indeed come. 
So he says, you be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I actually like the way the King James translations reinterpret the word patient. They call it be long-suffering. And what does this patience or what does this long-suffering look like? He says, establish your hearts. A word meaning to establish or to strengthen or to set firmly your hearts upon or to be fixated upon. It's the exact same term that is used of Jesus when he sets himself towards Jerusalem in Luke 9.51 when it says when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was fixated. That was where all of his attention was going. He wouldn't be turned from the left or from the right. It expresses an uncompromising resolve to do something. So in light of James's readers seeing the evil, rich people around them flourishing, commit your heart to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is near. Now that sounds a little strange to think James is writing in the 40s, not the 1940s, the 40s in the first century, and he says the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's been some 2,000 years. How can you call that even to be at hand? Well, it's a matter of perspective, really. To give you some form of perspective, consider the mayfly, considered to be one of the animals who lives the shortest amount of time for a lifespan of 24 hours. Now, from our perspective, something that we might consider to be close at hand or nearby would be Good Friday. Good Friday from from us today hearing this message is 12 days away. But for a mayfly, that same event that we would consider to be at hand or close by, for them it's not even a possibility. It's totally out of reach. It's something that belongs to the 11th or 12th generations of great-grandsons. But also, God's perspective is so different to ours. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10, to 10, specifically in the context of the nature and timing of his return, Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's not slow in the delay that has been between his first coming and second coming. In fact, it is an expression of his grace and mercy and his patience with his creation. It says he's yearning and desiring that as many as possible would repent, turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus, the provided means of salvation that God has provided so that people can escape the consequences for their sin and come and enjoy his wonderful salvation blessings. These people were called to be patient. 
Nobody promised us, Jesus didn't promise us that living in this world was going to be easy. But he did promise that he'd be with us till the end of the age. The one who has overcome the world is with us. The one who will judge the entire world who is with us. And as we await for his return and probably experience some hardship along the way, we know our human nature. We can be inclined to whinge, have a complain. So James, knowing this, says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Have you ever noticed that in the middle of hardship, we seem to be at our best when it comes to whinging? And the people that cop it most tend to be the people closest to us. Now, the Bible speaks a lot. James has even spoken a lot about the harm that our words can use, but also the great strength and benefit that our words can bring to those around us. We're supposed to use speech that is edifying, that builds other people up. But as we grumble, it it brings about division and tears people down. But some might ask, why on earth is James, as he writes to Christians, saying, do this that you may not be judged, because the judge is standing at the door. I thought if you are a Christian, Judgment's not something you're supposed to worry about. Now, there's a sense in which that's partially true. I mean, look at Romans 8.1. It's a, a totally true statement. It's a beautiful statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have turned from sin, place your trust in Jesus, and you genuinely have, there is no condemnation. You have received the very righteousness of Christ in your account. When you stand before him, you will stand before him as one who has done wrong things, but who has received the righteousness of Christ and will be judged as the righteous in his sight. But that doesn't mean that judgment has no impact upon the life of a believer. As Paul says to the Corinthians, says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we are called to be patient, knowing that the Lord, the judge, is coming who will not only judge the wicked, but reward those who have their hearts fixed upon him. And we are not to grumble to one another. And to illustrate this type of patience, then James goes on in verses 10 to 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Did you notice that? There's a a link there between patience and suffering. Because those two things necessarily belong together. You cannot grow in patience without there being suffering and hardship. Nobody grows in patience by having a perfect, easy, free-flowing life. You grow in patience as your patience gets tested. And the things which test our patience are unpleasant things, are, are hard things. And the specific example he points to is the Old Testament prophets. 
Now, the Old Testament prophets didn't have it easy. It sounds like a glamorous role, but generally they, they weren't respected. Often the people didn't listen. Often they were mistreated. Remember what Stephen said as he's standing before the rulers in Acts chapter 7. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Or on the other hand, think about Isaiah. How's this for a commissioning service? In Isaiah 6, 8 to 10, says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. How exciting of a mission would that be? I want you to go and be my prophet. Oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to understand you. Yet Isaiah was faithful to the call that was placed upon his life. As was Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos. And James was like, you want another example? One we all know about? How about Job? Look at what I say here. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, Job is an exceptional case for what patient endurance really looks like. Like even in the secular world, you hear people use the expression that somebody has the patience of Job as a term to describe someone who has exceptional patience, regardless of what comes their way. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Job was a wealthy man, and he was described as being a blameless man. And Satan comes before God in heaven and says, You know that Job, the only reason why he worships you is because you have blessed him with so many good things. And God says to Satan, You can do a certain number of things to him, and I guarantee you he will not turn from me. And so God permits Satan to do certain things to him. He takes away all of his livestock, all of his children, his house. And how does Job respond? He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that is patience and faithfulness. But what about those close to Job? How, how do they support and encourage him during that time? Well, look at his wife. His wife says, you should curse God and die. Wow, what wonderful supportive words from his wife. One Bible translation has Job's response as, you stupid woman. Now, for those thinking, wow, I've got a great biblical response that I can use at home for my wife now. Remember the context. If she tells you to curse God and die, I give you permission to use that phrase. In the same extent, I would say the same to the wives. 
If your husband tells you to curse God and die, you can say, you stupid man. But even Job's closest friends, they're not much support. They say, no, it's you. It's your fault. It's your sin is the reason why all of these things happen. Just own up to it. Fess up. Tell, tell God what you've done and it'll all be better. We can't say Job never complained. We can't say Job never questioned things about God. But we can say that Job continued to trust God, even though there was so much that he didn't understand about what God was doing in and through those moments. What James says is by reading these accounts, we have seen the Lord's compassion. We have seen the Lord's mercy towards Job to sustain and provide for him in the middle of all that. And if he can do that for someone who has suffered so much, he can do that for you. Even when we don't know the source of our troubles, our Lord has compassion and mercy. And as we set our heart fixed upon him, we guarantee in him you will have peace. He will sustain you. He will provide you with the things that you need. So again, be patient. Things may be tough. Set your hearts upon him. The Lord is coming. And then verse 12 almost seems like it's coming out of nowhere when it starts to talk about why we don't need oaths. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, your first thought could be, what do you mean we can't say oaths? Even God is described as, as giving oaths in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Well, it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. But then we see the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, the Old Testament did permit people to make oaths and to swear oaths, but it said explicitly not to swear by God. But what has changed? What has changed Old Testament, New Testament? Does this mean that if I was ever to be in a court setting, that I shouldn't take an oath? 
The point is this. Christians are called to be people of the truth. We should always speak the truth. As James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, what good would it genuinely be if I have to say, I'm doing this under oath, meaning this next bit that proceeds after this is true, what does that say about everything else you say? As Christians, we should be marked by using language of truth at all times. So we wait patiently, we endure, we set our hearts upon him, we don't grumble against one another, and we tell the truth always. Good things come to those who wait, as the old expression goes. Now as Christians, we're, we're really good at looking back to the cross. In a couple of weeks away, we're coming up to Easter, where we're on Good Friday, we'll focus upon Jesus' death on the cross, and on Sunday, on his resurrection, and the hope, and the life that which that brings. And soon we're about to gather around the Lord's table, which as Paul said to the Corinthian church, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We need to be a people who are, remember the cross, but who also, who are citizens from heaven and who eagerly await a saviour from there. What good would it be if we are not setting our hope upon the Lord who is coming again? How would you deal with life's struggles if you didn't have a, a fixed hope upon the certainty upon the return of Jesus? When you get that unexpected medical diagnosis, when you're concerned about wars or things happening in the world, injustice that you've personally experience or those close to you or abuse how do you cope with such things if there is no fierce awareness that the lord is returning who's not only returning to judge sin but to call his people to himself he is the one who has dealt with our sin once for all on the cross. And for those who have trusted in what Jesus has done on the cross on their behalf, that day will be a glorious day when they received up to be with him for all eternity. But for those who still haven't turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, on that day when Jesus returns, on that day they will receive the punishment due for their rebellion against God. He's not only coming as judge, but he'll come to be the rewarder of those who have set their hearts upon him. And in that day, we'll receive the fullness, the longing of our salvation, that we will be with him forever, to see him as he is, and to worship him for all eternity. What a beautiful day that will be. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognise that we are good at looking back to the cross and it is necessary that we look back to the cross. But even the cross and the resurrection in and of itself pointed us forward to the fact that you would one day return 
something we're about to be reminded as we gather around the Lord's table. Lord, help us to remember as we see and experience injustice that you will act in justness when you return to give to everyone for all they have done, either good or bad, where you will bring judgment to those who've lived in rebellion and hostility against you, but also where we receive the fullness of salvation for those who have trusted in you. And we give you thanks that what for many seems like a delay, a long period of time, is because of your patience, because of your yearning and your desire that people would come to know your salvation, to escape the judgment that awaits them, that is freely available to anyone who simply says, I'm a sinner. I need to die. Jesus, you have died for me. I want to live for you and trust that you have died the death that I deserve. And Lord, as we place and focus our hearts upon you and your return, May we live in the joy of knowing your presence with us now, but the great, beautiful inheritance that awaits us, those who are already citizens in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.